We're going to be in Luke 2 for the next four weeks. And so let me just recap kind of where we've been as a church. So since September, we have been in a series following through the book of 1 Corinthians. And one of the things that has been very plain to us as a church reading that letter is that the church of Corinth was obsessed about wisdom. They, they never could have enough wisdom. But the wisdom that they sought after was not an ability to apply the knowledge they already had. No, they wanted something new and, and something fresh. You, you could find the church of Corinth staring into their alphagetti, hoping God would reveal something new to them, something other people weren't aware of, so that then they could lord it over them. Well, I know something you don't know, and so I must be greater than you. And so last week, we finished up chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, and we heard this. Paul summarizes kind of his argument or his approach to this church, and he says this in chapter 4, verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. See, Paul's saying, look, here, here's what you need. You don't need something new. You need a reminder of that which I already told you. Let, let me remind you of the faith delivered once and for all to all the saints. And so if that's true then, that what we need more than anything is not some new information, but just a reminder, a, a greater steadfastness in what we already believe, then it is probably a good thing that we do this thing called Christmas every single year. It, it comes quickly upon us, especially now that the church is doing Christmas stuff. You're like, okay, it's, it's here, it's coming. I've heard the music, but the church is doing it. Now it's real, right? And, and so what we're doing is we're preparing ourselves for the coming of Jesus. We're preparing ourselves to celebrate his coming as a baby into the world. It's the season called Advent. And what we want to do as a church this year is we want to look at the responses people gave to the coming of Jesus. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the response of Mary, of the shepherds, of Simeon, of Anna. But before we do that, before we look at the response, we need to look at what they're responding to. We need a reminder of what Christmas is. So we're going to look at the manger scene today. Now, many of us are very familiar with this story of Christmas. But I think it's a, it's a good thing that this year we're specifically looking at Luke's account of Christmas. See, the beginning of Luke's letter, he actually tells us why he writes this book. So let me, let me tell you why Luke writes this book. He says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 3. It seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Here's why. That you may have certainty 
concerning the things you have been taught. I'm writing so that you would have certainty. Most excellent Theophilus, you you know a lot of things. You've probably already heard this story before, but I want to make sure you know it in a way where you're certain about it. It's not enough just to know it. You need to be certain about it. We could could translate that word certain differently. We, We could translate that sentence like this. I'm writing to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you would experience the safety, the security, and the stability of what you have been taught. I want you to be firmly rooted in it. It's hard, let's be honest, today to really believe anything with any degree of certainty. It seems like we doubt everything, right? We have access to so much information, and it seems like we forget just about that same amount of information. The information we do retain, we seem to conflate, and and we mix stories together so that we convolute the truth. We, we ourselves exaggerate a lot of things, so it's hard for us to know whether the things we've been taught are also exaggerated. Then there's this thing called fake news. That's a thing. So we wonder, are, are people twisting the truth? Are they just giving me a lie for their own personal gain and agenda? So we doubt the things we once thought true. So sure, I know the earth is round, but here's, I think, my greater concern, actually, though. My greater concern is that we know some things to be true. We, we believe some things to be true about God. And it's actually affecting the way we live our lives, but we actually want to be open up to a lie. We, we want to accept something that is false because it would actually be easier to live that way. Sometimes it's just hard to be certain about certain facts about God. And so we enter into relationships with one another, with loved ones, with friends, with family, with close, intimate people of ours in our lives. And we want to know, well, do you believe the same thing? And then all of a sudden we find out they don't believe the same thing as us. And so it'd be just easier to jump ship and just believe what they believe. Right? If, If that's the way our culture is going, let's go that way because it would just be easier to live that way than to hold fast, to be certain about the things I know to be true. And so we come up with excuses. Well, maybe I was wrong all along. Look, I'm not saying it's not okay to doubt. It's a good thing to doubt, but then go to the Bible. Know why you doubt. And then let the Bible be your authority. So, most excellent Christ city, you have heard the Christmas story before, but I want you to hear it in a new way that you're certain about it. 
so that you nail it down, you lock it up, and you don't let this world persuade you differently about it. Build your life on this Christmas story. So three things I want to look at this morning. The certainty of history, the certainty of promise, and the certainty of tragedy. Let's go. Firstly, the certainty of history. Follow with me in chapter 2. So in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So Caesar Augustus, he's the emperor of Rome at this time. Formerly, his name was Gaius Octavius. Julius Caesar is Augustus's uh, great-grand-uncle. And, and it turns out that Julius Caesar really admired his grand-nephew, Gaius Octavius. And so when, when Julius Caesar is murdered, uh, he actually, in his will, determines to make Gaius Octavius his successor. He, he makes him his heir and his son. So Gaius Octavius all of a sudden becomes the new kind of ruler over that certain area of Rome, and he changes his name to Gaius Julius. Now, it turns out that one of the other individuals who was co-reigning with Gaius Julius then at this time turned out to get the hots for Cleopatra. And so he became more concerned about his relationship with Cleopatra. And so Gaius Octavius, or Gaius Julius, all of a sudden seizes an opportunity to become the new emperor over the entire Roman world at that time. And so so basically he gets a bunch of allies and he, he conquers Rome. He becomes the first Roman emperor. That happens in 31 B.C., Then in the year 27 BC, because he's doing such a great job, the Senate actually imbues him with a new title and identity. They change his title to Caesar Augustus. And that means something. That word Augustus means sublime or supreme or magnificent one. So he becomes Caesar, the magnificent one, or the majestic one. In a way, what that Senate is doing is they're saying, Augustus, you are like God. And so this Augustus was actually a very great ruler. He he had a gifting administratively. And so he actually issued a number of decrees. Now, which decree is this one? Good thing you ask. It says, verse 2, This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So one of the individuals helping uh, Augustus rule over the Roman Empire was Quirinius. And Quirinius gave uh, kind of a decree, or Augustus gave the decree through Quirinius, through all of Syria, that the whole Roman world would have to go and be registered. Now, there's a famous registration that happened in AD 6. This is not that registration. This is, uh, Luke wants to make very clear, this is the first registration. So, verse 3 says, And all went to be registered, each to his own 
town. So it turns out that in this registration was used for tax purposes. You had to go back to your home city. I'm telling you, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm telling you all this. this is a lot. Just stick with me, okay? So they all go back to their home. Verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee. So Galilee is the region surrounding the Sea of Galilee. And he goes from the town of Nazareth. I've been there. It's about 200 people in the day of Jesus. And he goes to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. I've also been to Bethlehem, had my first Turkish coffee there. Super strong, grew my first chest hair overnight. Because he was of the house and the lineage of David. So, so David has to take his family, he has to go back to Bethlehem because that's where his ancestors were from. So they're making this trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, you don't go up as in you go north to Bethlehem. You go south, but Bethlehem is about 800 meters above Nazareth, and so they're going up. Now, the reason David is from Bethlehem is because he's from the lineage of— or uh, Joseph is from Bethlehem is because he's from the lineage of David— and he has to take with him Mary. So verse 5 says, so they went um, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Now, betrothed is simply meaning a, a legal declaration that you intend to be married. So, so Joseph and Mary had made a promise, and this is a legally binding promise. And so because of that, it's as though Mary also were legally considered to be part of the lineage of David. And so she too has to go with Joseph to Bethlehem. Now, why am I giving you all of this information? It's because I want to make sure it's very clear that this is history. This is an historical account. Luke was a physician, and he had an incredible eye to detail. And so he came up with a thorough account. He's talking to eyewitnesses in his day of people who witnessed these events, and he's writing, he says, an orderly account for most excellent Theophilus. He, he's, he's so detailed in what he does. Just listen to this in chapter 3. This is, again, the way Luke writes. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That's the way Luke writes. Because he's acting as a historian. He's like one of those brutal books where you just, all the footnotes are smack dab in the middle of the page. It's like you have to jump like three lines before you get to the next part of the sentence. But Luke wants to make it clear, this is history. This is how it actually happened. Many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. If not, you will be familiar because we quote him at least once a week here. So bear with me. C.S. Lewis, we're, we're, we know him mainly for his fictional stories, the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, C.S. Lewis was also a professor at Oxford and Cambridge where he taught English literature. And one of the things C.S. Lewis examined 
and discovered is that the gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read nothing like myth. They're not written like the genre of mythology. There's these little tidbits of information, all these historical details that you don't include if you're writing myth, because you don't care if it actually happened. But, but there's all these seemingly random bits of information as a way of pointing to the fact that this is historically authentic. It's a way of him saying, look, I talked to this person, and for some reason, this person remembers this obscure detail, but I'm going to include it anyways in the account. See, see, the only possibility, you could say, is maybe this is historical narrative. Maybe it's historical narrative. But even then, Lewis says this, look, the gospel writers are presenting, I quote, eyewitness accounts or else have without known predecessor or successor suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. What he's saying is this, look, if they did actually invent historical narrative, 1,900 years earlier than we thought historical narrative existed, no one did it before them, and no one copied them afterwards. He's saying, obviously, they didn't make up a new genre. This is just history. This isn't fiction. See, he's most excellent Theophilus, Luke is trying to say. Jesus is real. He was born in a real place to real people in real time. He was born to Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem during the first registration. He wasn't Zeus, born in Olympus, once upon a time. I think those words, um, once upon a time, are dangerous words to utter if you're a parent this season around Christmas. So I was um, just, we were doing bedtime with my family a, a, a little while ago now. And we, you know, we're reading the normal books we're reading in my house right now about fairies and unicorns and they're eating candy cane somewhere in Neverland. Anyways, we, we finished reading that story and then we, we're, we're beginning to read the Bible. And I'm, you know, adding in little details to the kids' Bible. And so I just start once upon a time and I just go on with my story. And then it clued into me halfway through my story. I'm like, wait, hold on. This is, I need to make sure my kids realize this is not like the fairy tales we just read about. So I'm, I'm like backtracking. Hold on, kids. I just need to tell you something. We have this like pause in the story. What you're reading here, it's not make-believe. Fairies aren't real. Unicorns aren't real. But this is real. Okay, this is not, this is not pretend. So I've been doing that like, you know, every time we read the Bible for a little while. We, we began reading Christmas stories uh, a couple weeks ago now, because that's when my wife likes to decorate for Christmas. And I, and I begin, I'm like, hey, kids, before we start, and my, my oldest daughter, she's like, I know, Daddy, this is real. It's not make-believe. Can we get on with the story, please? But especially around Christmas, right? With Rudolph and Santa and Frosty the Snowman and all the lights. It's just this magical season. And so it's so easy to fall into that and believe, well, Jesus is just one of those stories. 
But, but the reality is, is that every Christmas, smack dab in the middle of our city is this ginormous, immovable mountain named Jesus. And, and, and Luke's saying he's real. The other gospel writers are saying he's real. Four counts are written about Jesus. Paul will say, hey, Jesus appeared to 500 people after he was resurrected. You can't just say that and not be, have it not be true. You just totally discredit yourself, right? It's easy for one person to maybe make up a story, but for 12 of Jesus' followers to all say the same story, and then people are like, look, if you don't change your tune, we're going to execute you. We're going to behead you, crucify you upside down, stone you, exile you. And they're still like, I'm sorry, this is true. Look, you don't, you don't stick to your story if you're making it up. This is, this is real. And, and, and Luke's saying, you, you have, Theophilus, you have to deal with this. You have to decide, okay, who is Jesus to you? You can't just wash him away with all the lights and all the eggnog and all the presents. Deal with him. You have to decide who is this Jesus going to be. I want you to know. I want you to be certain, Theophilus, Jesus is real and you can bank your life on him. Secondly, so first we had the, the, the certainty of history. Secondly, the, the certainty of promise. So, so when Luke is writing the, Theophilus, he, want to make, he wants to make sure that he doesn't just realize that, that Jesus is kind of placed here in, in history. He's also wanting uh, Theophilus to realize that Jesus' coming fulfills a number of promises and prophecies that God gave in the Old Testament. So this verse, verse 4 in our passage, seems innocent at first glance, but it's actually loaded with information. So verse 4 reads again like this. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. That, that verse is packed with hyperlinks, if you'd like, to the Old Testament. He's saying, look, Jesus has fulfilling a number of promises here that, that God gave thousand years ago. So one of those promises is found in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11 reads this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So, so, so Isaiah is making a promise here. God, God is speaking through Isaiah. He's like, there's someone who's going to come. He's going to come from the line of Jesse. So it goes, Jesse, King David. But it's not going to be David because that tree has been cut down. Instead, from that branch, there will be roots that will bear fruit. So someone else is coming, and, and Luke's writing here, and he says, hold on, there's this guy named Joseph. He, he happens to be from the line of David and from Jesse. God's putting into motion something he said long ago. 750 years before Jesus, Micah makes a promise. Micah 5.2 says this, but you, 
O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, the ancient of days. This tiny little village, Bethlehem, it's probably even smaller than Nazareth. From Bethlehem will come the Savior of the world. Bethlehem, even though it's so small that you don't even list it in the cities of Judea, doesn't matter. God says, that's where I decided my Savior is going to be born. Now, can we just talk about this one thing? God is incredibly inefficient. Like, like you didn't have to make this promise about Bethlehem. I mean, it's just like math, right? There's little people in Bethlehem. You want your odds to be greater, God. Just say the coming king of the world will be from Jerusalem. Right? That the odds are way more likely in your favor, God. That would be, it'd be so much easier. But God goes, no, no, no. It's gonna be, he's gonna, he's gonna come from that little town no one's heard of called Bethlehem. And, and then think of how he gets Mary there. Like there, God could have done a lot of things to get Mary to Bethlehem. Uh, I, they could, Mary and Joseph could have been on vacation. In Jerusalem, checking out the, the restaurant scene, make a, trip, a quick trip down to Bethlehem, say hi to the family. Joseph, Joseph could have been on a business trip, right? He could have just, Mary could have joined him. They could have been on a business trip to Bethlehem. God could have just picked another woman who was already from Bethlehem. But God goes, now this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to usher a decree That's right. Let's do a decree where the whole world has to travel all over the place because there's this little seemingly insignificant couple. And I I made a promise long ago, and and she's got to get to Bethlehem. That's like me wanting to invite you over to for dinner, and I call up, yo, Justin, uh, you know, you make this announcement, come up with this law, everyone has to go to their pastor's house for dinner, bring a steak, stay a little while, right? Like, like it's, it's utterly ridiculous. God is so inefficient. Why do it this way? Why make it hard? I think it's this reason. I think if God didn't do things in, in miraculous and scandalous and, and mind-shattering ways, we'd have an even harder time than we already do believing he's going to come through with his promises for us. Like, let, let's just be honest with each other. Uh, no matter how much faith you've had, you do have. There, there are times when it just feels like your back is against the wall and we just go, God, I just don't think you're going to come through this time. And God is here going through the Christmas story. No, no, no. You need to hear something. I keep all of my promises. Even those small, itty, little, bitty ones 
that no one thought would be possible. And I keep them in astounding ways. I'm going to shock you like I shocked them back then. I think there's times we, we look at the situation we find ourselves in and we just go, God, I think you would have done it already by now. Like, like if you were going to keep your promise to me, it would have, you would have come through already. Like there was that perfect job opportunity, God. And it just felt like all the pieces were in place. I had the right contact, and yet it just slipped through my hands. Where did it go? God, this, this health issue I've been struggling with for a while now, and it's hurting. And I, I had that procedure, and they said it would work. And it's not working. God, are you really going to come through this time? God, I'm, I'm looking for a spouse. And I thought there, this was the one. Things seem to be heading in the right direction. How come it didn't work out? God, do you really, do you, do you really see me? But God's not going to answer the way we always think he should answer. Sometimes he's going to answer inefficiently. No matter how, how dim the situation looks, God wants to say, but yes, even now you can still trust me. See, Advent, Advent is a reminder that things are not the way they should be. Things are not the way they should be. Sometimes I look around and I'm like, God, this world, it is a dumpster fire right now. Like the injustice, illness, indifference in the world. God, like, how, how are you going to keep your promises? Specifically, how, how are you going to keep that promise you made in Revelation? God, you, you said this. Chapter 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is Jesus crying out from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. And the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these things are trustworthy and true. Like, really, God? I, I don't see that. But Advent is the reminder. Look, for 750 years, they were waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. And it came true. And so we can wait right now, too. Things are not the way they should be. But we hope with certainty, with assurance that God will keep all of his promises, that he will make all things new, that he will restore all things to the way that they should be, and that once again he will come and dwell with his people. Most excellent Christ city, I need you to know that God keeps his promises to you, to his church, and to his world. Lastly, the certainty of tragedy. Pick it up in verse 4 again. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Do you see what's wrong here? Like the, the creator God, the God who is overall, the God who puts his promises into action by, by controlling Caesar Augustus, the, the most powerful person in the world, the, the God who takes Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, 130 kilometers, through the wilderness, in the middle of the winter, keeping her safe, making sure she gets there in time, the God who puts all of that into action. And Mary and Joseph show up to Bethlehem, and there's no place for them in the inn? Like, like God, you, you just ushered a decree through the most powerful person in the world. You can do that, but you can't make sure there's a spot for them in the inn? And, and so, so we think manger, right? And we think, oh, that's, that's cute. And oh, you got the little fluffy animals cooing. And oh, they're all looking at Jesus. So that, that's, not, that's actually not what a manger was. That's, that's not what a stable was, right? This is not your country fair stable where all the kids are showing up to pet the animals. No, this, this is a, look, my inn is full, and so I ain't got time to clean my stable. Like, th this is, this is, this is the, the mixing of that dank animal manure with sweat, and blood, I'm being graphic here, but it's just, this is, what, this is what the picture is. Just manure, just all over the place. You got mice and the scat, and they're just scrambling around. You got that annoying goat that just won't stop meh in the corner. Just won't let the baby sleep. Then they, then they decide, okay, well, this is what we got. So we're, let's, lay, let's lay Jesus in a manger, in a feeding trough with all that foaming saliva after the animals have spent their time licking each other. Like, this is, this, is, this God? So, so, so you control the heart of Caesar, but you don't control the heart of the innkeeper? Why? Why, God, come this way? Because that's how God chooses to use his power. God uses all of his power and all of his might to go as low as he can go. To be as despised as anyone could be. So that he could relate to lowly and despised people. See, for Theophilus, this would have sounded like madness. Like, like, he was used to Caesar Augustus, who took every inch of what people gave him. He was ruthless. Uh, Augustus was the man that became God. But Luke's saying, no, 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 here is God become a man. It's scandalous. 
But, but Theophilus, you, you need to get this, that this is the way God chooses to act in the world because if you don't get this, the way he came as a baby, then his death won't make sense either. L- listen how Luke continues to explain what happened in chapter 23. So we're fast-forwarding to the end of Jesus' life here. And then we read this. Pilate. So he, he's ruling over Judea. He's Caesar's kind of authority in Judea. Pilate then called the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done to him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Barabbas was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered over Jesus to their will to be crucified. And then then jump forward a few verses and we read this in verse 53. After Jesus has been killed on the cross, then he, that's Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy individual, took it down and get this, wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb, cut him in stone where no one had ever been laid before. does Does that sound familiar? God, ruling over the authority in the land, Pilate, even though Jesus has done nothing wrong, God uses all of his authority to what? To be crucified, to come and suffer. And then just like Jesus was wrapped in cloths and laid in a manger, well, they wrap him in linen and lay him in a tomb. That's why Jesus came to suffer, to, to, to take our place. He came as a man because he had to identify with us humanity. And, and then he bore our sin on the cross. He suffered so that we, like the murderer, could go free. The righteous crucified so that the guilty would be declared innocent. That's why he came. That, that's the very thing he's trying to show us here in the manger. But it wasn't just his coming that fulfilled his promises. It wasn't just his death that fulfilled his promises. It was his resurrection as well, where he again said, yes, I am making all things new. Yes, my promise to give you everlasting life has begun. Yes, I will fix everything that is broken. Let me close by telling you this. So C.S. Lewis, again, we're referring to him. So I'm actually intrigued at the reason C.S. Lewis struggled to to come to Christianity. Lewis actually didn't struggle with the historicity of the Bible. 
He wasn't going to believe something that wasn't true. No. The reason C.S. Lewis struggled was because the Bible was history. Was because it was true. You see, Lewis was obsessed about mythology. Everything meaningful to Lewis came through myth. There was nothing in this world that gave him hope. There was nothing in this world that inspired him. And so he turned to mythology for meaning. And so he said, how, how, I, if this is just true and this is of the world, this actually happened, then there's probably nothing here for me. But then Lewis read the accounts and he encountered something he'd never seen before. And he was filled with awe. He saw God become a man. He saw God suffer for humanity so that those who are broken might be set free. And he was stunned. And it changed him. See, see in Jesus, we have these, this collision, this collision of what is true and what is awe-inspiring and life-transforming. It's in Jesus that we have certainty. And so, most excellent Christ City, build your life on this. Stake your life on Jesus, on his coming, and on his death, and on his coming once more. Let's pray. Father, we just confess again that it's hard to believe all of your promises. God, we just, we wonder at how you'll make all things new, how you make us new. So God, we just ask you that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, we confess like others have confessed in the Bible. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Lord, give us certainty concerning these things. Lord, we long for Christmas Day when we celebrate your first coming because, God, we want to experience that excitement of your second coming. So come, Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at Jake at Christ City Church. That's the end.